Welcome to the Fundraising Leadership Podcast, where we engage in lively and thoughtful conversations with professionals in the nonprofit world and the personal growth and leadership world, as is the case today. I am excited to be here today with my friend and teammate, David Languli, and he's going to introduce our guest. Thank you, Margaret. Good to see you. Uh, we have a very special guest today for the audience, um, Andre Solo. And we, I, I think I reached out to Andre because he's got a new book out uh, uh, for sensitive people, or even if you're not sensitive, if you have sensitive children or you work with sensitive folks. And I'm going to read his, his bio here. But since I think we find a lot of folks in the nonprofit world are sensitive, and we're going to invite Andre to define that term for us And um, in a moment here, we thought this would be, and they work with sensitive people also, we thought this would be a good uh, topic for the podcast. And I, I have to say, I'm I'm so delighted for Andre. He uh, this week, uh, his book "Sensitive: The Hitting Power of the Highly Sensitive Person in a Loud, Fast, and Too Much World" just hit the best-selling nonfiction charts. So we are so excited to have him on the podcast. Andre is not only an author; he is also the co-founder of Sensitive Refuge, the world's largest website for sensitive people. We're going to link to that in the show notes. He's an author, speaker, and researcher and serves as the chief make it happen officer of Introvert Deer, the world's largest website for introverts. By the way, I am an ambivert show up as an extrovert, as I am right now, but at heart, I'm an introvert. So just for the audience to know. Um, and he's a sensitive person himself. He's spoken about sensitivity at Google, Amazon, and PayPal, and writes about sensitive people at Quartz, Forbes, and Psychology Today. He has also been featured in Time, Oprah Daily, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, Bustle, CNBC, the Telegraph and numerous podcasts, including ours now. And uh, Solo divides his time between New Orleans and St. Paul, Minnesota, where he stays up way too late, overwaters his house plants, and chases after a very plucky two-year-old. Welcome, Andre. Thanks for having me, guys. It's really exciting to be here. Yeah. So... Margaret, why don't you uh, yeah. invite Andre? Yeah, into the well, podcast. I'm going to start by just just my my hope, my intention. You know, when people have told me for the most part over the course of my life that I'm sensitive, it wasn't really meant to be a compliment. <laughs> so um, maybe it would be wonderful for our audience, Andre, if you would start by explaining to us what you mean when you um, when you use this term in all of your writing and speaking. Yeah, absolutely. So I think when we hear the word sensitive, a lot of us use it to mean being weak or fragile or someone who overreacts to things or can't handle things. And that is just not what sensitive means. As a personality trait, being sensitive means that you take in more information from the world around you 
and you do more with it. So sensitive people are actually wired at the brain level to process all information more deeply. And they basically spend more mental resources, more attention, even more time uh, ruminating and contemplating and making connections between things when they take information in. They don't filter out as many details and as much information as other people do. And the cool thing about that is that there's so many different kinds of information in our world, right? So that's, that's true of sensory information. So a sensitive person might be the one who notices that scratchy texture of a fabric or that subtle note of, of oak in a nice Chardonnay. But information can also be emotional, and that's oftentimes the most important information we have in our world. It's how we understand and connect with other human beings, and it's really the language that most of us are, are uh, taught to speak first before we even have words. So sensitive people are picking up more and processing that kind of information more deeply, too. So they tend to be really good at noticing social cues and emotional cues and intuiting what that means. So if you're a highly sensitive person, you might be the only one who notices that little like hint of a smile that flashes across someone's face for a half second before they hide it. And uh, other people might miss that. So you just have this sense of like, wait a minute, they, they're not telling the truth, or maybe they mean something different than what they're saying they mean or they're hiding something and other people might completely miss it. So these two types of sensitive, the sensory kind or physical kind and the emotional kind, they're basically two sides of the same trait. And they're actually so closely connected uh, that in studies it's been found that if, uh, if you take a Tylenol to numb your physical headache, uh, you'll actually score lower on an empathy test until the Tylenol wears off. Oh, that so resonates yeah, with me. Right. I my body is so sensitive to medication. This is another trait. Like I can't even, you know, I've had surgeries. Uh, I can't even take an opioid, not even like one pill. Mm. It will cause my head to scratch and I'll get highly agitated. It's like the exact opposite of what it's supposed to do is how it affects me. I, I you know, I had three pins put in my thumb a couple of years ago and I said to the doctor, I can't take it, you know, I can't take any opioids after the surgery. He says, well, you're going to be in a lot of pain. I said, I'll just take the pain, you know, that's yeah. it. Yep. Right. So Tylenol. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like who knew, right? Who knew? Yeah. And that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. I mean, Tylenol can still help with the physical pain, but for all people, whether you're highly sensitive or less sensitive, that's just the way you're wired is that you can kind of turn the dial up or down, but it's for everything across the board. So the physical side, the emotional side. And the other thing that sensitive people tend to really do is uh, to go deep. They're deep thinkers, right? Because if you're processing information more deeply, you spend more time considering it, ruminating on it. Uh, thinking about other points of views, connecting it to other concepts and other ideas and memories you have and other experiences you've had. And because of that, sensitive people tend to be highly creative. Uh, they tend to be really powerful, deep thinkers who often notice things that others miss and do make connections that surprise others and that can make them powerful innovators as well. So it's a very powerful trait and it's actually a great human strength rather than the weakness we often think of it as. Uh, Andre, it makes me curious, and I know that um, David and I both uh, identify and have tested very high on various assessments um, for this, but that you've, you've obviously sort of taken something and, and you're holding it as a gift, which I love, but I'm guessing that it wasn't always that way and that you've had a journey to get here. So um, I'm hoping maybe you'll be willing to share a little bit about you know, what, what, what was your aha Yeah, when absolutely. you sort of put a name to, oh, this is just, isn't just me. 
Right. Yep, not, that's only, a great not only what was your aha, but what really led you to write the book about your aha? Ooh, like, yeah. Yeah. That's a fun question. So, yeah. So I've always been a sensitive person. Being sensitive is mostly genetic. And so if you're sensitive, you tend to be born that way. And so I was a sensitive kid growing up. And I didn't know that about myself. I didn't have that word for it. But I remember being in kindergarten. And I did fine in the classroom. That was fine. But once we got out on the playground, suddenly you have hundreds of kids who are running, yelling, playing, laughing, screaming, sometimes fighting, and it became overstimulating. And I didn't realize I was being overstimulated, but I knew that I was just, I needed to get out of there. This was too much for me. So I started running away and I looked for a place to hide during recess that would be quiet. The only place I could find was the opening of like a storm sewer that was near the edge of the school property. So I would go in there, nice and quiet, peaceful, and I would just spend recess chilling in there. And then when I hear the bell, I'd come back out and run back to class. And that worked for a while until the teachers realized where I was going. And that's apparently a big problem that schools don't want kids going and hiding in the sewers. So that meant a call home to my parents and a huge discussion. And nobody, not the teachers, not my parents, could ever say, why would you go and hide there? Like, well, it was quiet and the playground's so loud. What? What? You, it's playground you should be playing they just didn't understand this overstimulation and that was they really one don't. of the they still don't i have to say to you my <laughs> wife is also highly sensitive and yep. i have two highly sensitive children so as you say there is this genetic propensity yeah. as does margaret has a super highly sensitive son and probably both of them are margaret yeah 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 definitely in um, very different ways but yes in, in very different ways, yes. Um, and my wife teaches second grade. And we often, this is just a side, this is kind of a side note, and we'll get back to, to you sure, and sure. your your manhole entrance. And <laughs> well, probably so traumatized from that. That's why you've always wanted to write this book. But anyway, or no, actually, you got traumatized by the teachers. I, I was actually traumatized by many teachers in grade school who just didn't understand me um at all and um but my thing is like let's ban recess all the bad shit happens at recess and it's so true my wife will come home and everything that happens that's quote-unquote bad definitely happens on the playground at recess so well, i feel your pain brother on the school bus which is oh, on the school <laughs> bus is another thing they should ban exactly uh, they're pretty close <laughs> i think honestly yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's get back to you and yes. your that's first grade for you, right? Is what you said. It was, and it was kindergarten, um, yeah. So right around that same age. And yeah. you know, that was just one of the first experiences where I started to think of this as like, well, there's something wrong with me, right? This mm -hmm. it must be obviously I did something wrong, and it's just so you know, why am I like this? I sort of viewed myself mm -hmm. as almost maybe broken in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and over the course of my childhood and 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 adolescence, I really tried to hide that sensitive part of myself and even even really tried to pretend I was really tough and um, maybe the opposite of sensitive as if to cover it up, which I think is something that a lot of boys especially will do if they are sensitive. Um, and it wasn't until I was an adult that I started to, it was when I was getting into the research about sensitivity, because just in general, I'm very interested in the science of uh, personality and, and psychology. 
um, and especially with my work on introversion and things like that. So I started to um, kind of tangentially get into the research about sensitivity. And there was a specific paper I read. And oddly enough, it was a similar situation that the author, who was a researcher, was uh, she was the paper was about highly sensitive children and what they need in schools. But she was using her son, who's also a test as a highly sensitive person, uh, as like a case study. Um, and she was talking about his first grade experience and uh, the overstimulation and all the other things, the other ways in which the first school he went to just didn't work for him. Uh, and it just wasn't a, a good environment for a highly sensitive child. And it wasn't until they changed schools that's uh, and to a kind of a different classroom environment and different teacher that he really started to love school and began to thrive. And as I read about her son, I was highlighting in the paper uh, just like every other sentence. Oh, like that reminds me of me. Oh, that reminds me. Oh, that one too. And so pretty soon I'd highlighted almost the entire paper and I realized, wait a minute, what if I'm a highly sensitive person? Uh, mm -hmm. And that was when I re just really clicked home for me. So yeah, mm -hmm. ever since then, been working uh, with with my co-author, Jen Graneman. Uh, we created Sensitive Refuge together. And um, you know, she has a very different story than me. She she knew she was sensitive her whole life and she identified as a highly sensitive person early on. So that was you know information that was on her radar. Whereas for me, like I think a lot of sensitive people, I didn't have that word for it or even tried to deny it for a long time. And so we kind of come at this from different angles. But we really wanted to bring that message out and help help other people who are highly sensitive understand that, first of all, this is just who you are. It's a healthy, normal trait. Secondly, it comes with huge strengths, huge gifts, and you should really embrace it and celebrate it. Yeah. What, how do you um, speak to people about, like, how, how do we navigate this? I mean, it is true both that it's a gift and also it makes it really hard to do certain things, you know, like David and I both talked about how hard it is to be in airports, for example, you know, where there are so many people who are so anxious and they're aggravated and agitated. And, mm -hmm. you know, I can get there as calm as I ever am. And then within 15 minutes, you know, I'm like, you know, yeah. so yeah. those kinds of situations or, you know, how, what what do you have to offer to us about like, how, how do we navigate this? Okay. <laughs> yeah, so you're right. I think there, it's just like any other healthy trait. There's advantages and there's drawbacks, right? And the drawbacks for sensitive people include overstimulation and that ability to get emotionally overloaded in, in certain situations. And that can kind of creep into many different areas of life. And the world is not designed for highly sensitive people and our needs, right? Um, I think it helps oftentimes to put it in perspective when talking to people to start with the numbers. So being sensitive is a continuum, right? Everyone is sensitive to some degree. We all have a sensitive side. The toughest, least emotional person in the world has some level of sensitivity. Um, but you can fall anywhere along this continuum. And most people, uh, about 40, maybe a little more than 40%, fall in the middle. They're kind of like average sensitivity. Some people fall at the low end of the continuum. Uh, and that's not many of them, maybe about 20 or so percent. Um, and then roughly 30 percent of people test high for sensitivity. And those numbers are the same for both men and women and people of all genders. And so I think it helps to understand that this is not like, you know, one percent or two percent of people, which wouldn't mean it's unimportant. But it's it's that this is a very common trait and it's spread through the population the same way as other major healthy normal traits like introversion and extroversion, being more open or less open, more conscientious or less conscientious. It has a similar bell curve, similar distribution to those. This is a very normal trait for both men and women. And 
when you view it that way, it starts to come into focus both why there is this kind of mismatch between the way the world is built and what sensitive people would benefit from, but also why that might need to change. Because on the one hand, sensitive people are minority. You know, if you're 30% of people who get overstimulated in situations with the other 70%, the average sensitivity and the low sensitive people, they can just filter out. It's not a big problem for them. Uh, well, that's, you know, no wonder the world isn't built around what we would prefer or the way that would be best for us. But at the same time, this is a huge number of people, right? This is millions and millions of people in every country, if nearly one in three people. So that's if you are not highly sensitive yourself, maybe your spouse is, your child is, a coworker, one of your parents, a friend, you have highly sensitive people in your life who you care about. And there's become this stigma around it. And I think the, the overstimulation is very visible to people. When a sensitive person's you know, having a hard time processing everything all at once, and they're seeming a little bit overwhelmed, uh, that's very obvious to people. What's not always so obvious is the deep processing and the many gifts that come with it, because that's hidden inside the mind, right? That, that deep processing means sensitive people are creative. But creativity is not just useful in the arts, it also is what fuels innovation. So it's valuable in science and medicine and technology and business. Sensitive people also tend to have a very high sense of compassion and empathy, and to actually score higher for empathy than other people and show more brain activity in regions related to empathy and, and caring about others, including strangers. Um, so this is a powerful pro-social trait to have. Um, also, they tend to be more attuned to their physical environment. They often notice details that others don't. That might not sound like the most powerful strength in the world, but that's kept our species alive for millions of years. This is something that the military actually trains people to do. They call it situational awareness. And it's this ability to detect tiny little things that might indicate there will be an ambush or the enemy is moving or there's information we don't have. And that's exactly what... Um, we use it for today, both in the military, it's also used in emergency rooms and hospitals. You, know, you have to notice small changes in the patient that might indicate a problem, and it saves lives. So these are powerful traits, but they're often harder to see than the fact that sometimes in an overstimulating, loud, chaotic environment, the sensitive person might just seem like, ah, this is too much. Uh, so yeah, I think there's a mismatch, but I think it's an understandable one. And I think it's something that sensitive people, the best thing we can do is to the greatest extent possible, start to take control of our environment, whether that's at home, at work, uh, choosing which relationships we want to give time to and which people in our life are really healthy and helpful for us. There's a lot of ways you can control your environment that, um, you know, that are under your control. And that's, I think, one of the best things sensitive people can do. Mm, yeah. Where you go, what environment you choose to be where in. Where you don't. Where you don't grow, right? So Margaret yeah. is is right now in a, in, a, in a very challenging environment that we both spent a lot of time in in our lives, which is New York City. Um, although she is in an apartment in New York City where she seems to be very calm at this moment um, and, <laughs> and, shielded, and shielded from all the chaos. Um, I was, this conversation reminds me, I was at uh, my younger daughter's lacrosse game last night. And when they would have timeouts, they started just blasting music oh yeah. Like, yeah it it hit me like with these big speakers so the whole field could hear the music and i'm like under these speakers in the stands and i'm like oh my god <laughs> do we really need this right now please yeah. don't do that so i i'm so glad you're bringing this to the forefront and recognizing that there is a spectrums and know, knowing that I'm not the only one who's probably feeling the same way about this. Um, 
you know, will raise awareness that either just turn that volume down. It just doesn't need to be that loud or it's actually okay to have some silence. So I'm curious, I have a question about intuition because this is something that I've been working on uh, rediscovering um, in my in my own way uh, is something we all have. And what I've been noticing is that as I have been amping up the volume on my intuition, I'm having more and more challenges dealing with the noise of the world. So I'm curious if you if you notice anything about this in your research or it's just something I'm dealing with right now. I'm just noticing like more and more as I because, you know, we could talk about sensitive people as being empaths or intuitives as well. Sure. And yeah. this is a way of knowing and a way of sensing, like you talked about with the military, like sensing when something is shifting and before anyone else does it, that's an intuitive feeling. So I'm curious about like where, where this comes in for you, this intuition and, and how even people who are maybe not so sensitive, but are starting to sharpen their intuition might actually get higher on the spectrum. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I think that's a good point. The last thing you just said there that, you know, everyone can access these gifts of sensitive people if they take the time to lean into the sensitivity they do have, right. Which usually involves taking more time and quiet to just quietly reflect on things and let your brain process. And don't just go with your your first uh, shoot from the hip decision, but really sit down and reflect on things. That's a really good way for people who are maybe average or less sensitive to start to develop that deeper thinking, that creativity, those insights, and indeed that intuition. Um, so, but to answer your question, yeah. So I think let's start with the the empathy side of it, right? Because you, you mentioned that sensitive people can also be empaths. And I think that's a very good point. So when you think of an empath, I think the the general way people use it to mean is that it's not just that you have a sense of empathy, but that you you absorb the emotions from other people around you. That empaths will say that they can just walk into a room and before they even look around and, and think about well who's thinking what or anything else, they just sort of immediately feel stressed because someone else there is stressed and just sort of absorb that. Um, and I think that's I think that's a great word. I think a lot of researchers don't like the word empath because it sounds kind of squishy. Um, but I think it's a good word because it's it fits the description. It fits the experience, I should say, that people have of it. Um, the scientific explanation of empaths is probably that they're highly sensitive people. And Judith Orloff, the leading uh, empath author, is kind of on she's on the record now saying that she agrees with that. So the way that this works for highly sensitive people and for anyone, but especially for the more sensitive you are, the more active the system tends to be. We've all heard of the mirror neuron network, right? The mirror neurons in your in your brain that help to interpret the emotions of other people. And what's interesting is that these were not originally emotion-related neurons. These are motor neurons. They're the same types of neurons that help you move your body. And the reason for that is long before we were these sophisticated, uh, complex social creatures, uh, plenty of species on Earth just needed to be able to physically mimic the world around them, right? So if if you're teaching your offspring how to do something, if if a baby cat sees the mom cat, uh, you know, jump on a mouse, the baby cat needs to be able to learn. Now that's how I jump on mice to really get them, not let them get away. And so we can think of it, you know, among humans as like, if I see you do a dance move, now I'm clumsy, I'll badly imitate the dance move, but I can get the general gist. If you raise your right arm, I can raise my right arm. So our our motor neurons, these mirror neurons have developed the ability to see what someone else is doing and imitate it with the physical body. And from there, this weird thing happened somewhere back in evolution 
where those motor neurons began to reverse engineer the emotions and thoughts of other people. Because if you see somebody else smile a certain way, that's a physical movement of the facial muscles. And your motor neurons are like, oh, that's like, I would move my, my face this way to do that. And then your brain's like, but if I was moving my face that way, that would mean I'd feel this way. And pretty soon you have this system that can, with a fairly high degree of accuracy, model or reconstruct the internal states of other people, especially their emotions, and to a lesser extent, maybe their intentions or, or other things. And this is actually very accurate. Is it 100% accurate? No. I think a lot of empaths wish that they could say it is, and it often feels like it is, because usually if you trust it, it's right. But we do know for sure from studies that uh, when you ask people to rate how stressed out they can sense someone else is, even people who score high for empathy, they don't get it 100% right. They'll sometimes attribute, well, that person must be really stressed out because they would be stressed out in the situation the person's in. But that person reports low stress and their physical signs like their heart rate also show low stress. So it's not 100% accurate, but it's very, very accurate. So mm -hmm. human beings, we're walking around with the most powerful social computer in the universe inside of our heads. And we mm -hmm. can imitate, we can model the emotions of others. Now, when you do that very strongly, we know that those systems have greater activity in highly sensitive people than they do in others. It becomes a situation where you start to feel the emotions firsthand. Emotions are contagious that way. And that's a good thing because that's how you have fun at a party. Other people are smiling and having fun. You start to smile and have fun. It's how you laugh with friends. Uh, it's good that they're infectious, but it's also uh, how you can pick up stress, sadness, grief, other things like that from other people, which is also helpful. It allows us to see when someone's in pain and needs help, but it's not always pleasant. Um, so yeah, there's this, this sort of uh, ability to um, sense uh, sort of with intuitively what someone else is feeling. Can that be applied more broadly, like to having an intuition on like, I know what's going to happen in a situation? There's not good research on it, but it seems like probably yes. Um, we do know that sensitive, uh, I believe this one was of sensitive primates. So actually it was monkeys that, uh, you know, have the same genes related to sensitivity in humans. And they consistently perform better at, at tests involving uh, predicting outcomes and noticing changes in patterns. So their intuition was allowing them to predict, oh, this is gonna be different now. Uh, so that's sort of like an intuition, right? It's like you can sort of see what's coming. And in humans, similarly, we know that sensitive people tend to score better at a variety of cognitive tasks and tend to make better long-term decisions. So there seems to be this ability to just pick up on an unconscious level, oh, I, I got all those little details, I processed them deeply, and I just know we gotta move. And mm -hmm. I can't say why, I just know it. I think that's very valid, very real. Mm, that's that's great. I mean, I think this is good news for many of the fundraisers in our audience because you know our audience. I think you were in the nonprofit world, or yeah. you have some affection for the nonprofit world. <laughs> both, uh, yeah. <laughs> both, okay, and that's another reason why we wanted to have you on the podcast. Um, is Margaret and I spent uh, spent a good number of years fundraising, and intuition or sensitivity or em empathy, however we want to label it, these might be shades, a little bit of a different color or shade, uh, actually is a superpower for fundraisers. So I'm curious about your thought about that for our audience. Yes, yeah, my, 
Years ago, in a previous life, I, I worked in major fundraising for nonprofits and started off at an environmental organization in more of a part-time position, but eventually moved into major fundraising at uh, two museums and um, really loved it. I really loved it. Uh, I, I eventually realized, no, I really want to be an author. That's what I want to do with my life. But I feel really happy with the work I did for those organizations. And um, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's there is a book I was handed, you know, when I first started doing major fundraising that was supposed to kind of show me the ropes. And nonetheless, there's not a book in the world that can teach you how to do that. It really is a felt sense of feeling out other people and relationships and um, kind of the the mood in the room and what, what someone's true hope is for what they want to do with their money or their time or or what matters to them. And that's how you start to build, you know, relationships that are not just about, well, can you give us this much money? But it's about, um, it's a two-way exchange where it's like, oh, we see what's important to you. We're, we think that there's a way in which our work aligns with that. And we want to work together to really make that uh, happen so that everyone kind of comes out of this feeling that we've done something meaningful, including, and maybe especially the donor. Um, and then, it, of course, then fuels really important work in the world, whether that's an art museum, whether that's saving lives, whatever it might be. Um, so you're right. Yeah, that's absolutely crucial. And what's interesting is I think there's a misconception. I think we often think that um, leaders are the opposite of sensitive, like the best leaders need to be cold, aggressive, um, you know, quick snap decision makers, shoot from the hip, that that's what makes someone a good leader. There's decades of research that show that not only is that not the best kind of leader, but someone who fits that description is probably going to do a really ineffective job of leading. They will not get the best outcomes. They may even cause harm to teams or organizations or the cause. What we do know, though, is that sensitive traits often show up as very powerful leader traits, right? So being humble, being uh, the kind of person who naturally wants to ask four or five different opinions before you uh, before you make a decision. So you're talking to your team members who work on the ground doing the work. You're talking to some experts. You're pulling in some research, some data. You're making a better overall decision that's more thoughtful for the organization. But one part of that is, of course, this sense of relationships, because what's more important for our leaders than to have the ability to um, to unite people and rally people around a vision, especially in nonprofits, but even in the for-profit world. And in the writing of the book, we were able to interview a, a highly sensitive person who, I'm not allowed to say her organization, but I can say that she was the director of the uh, the corporate foundation, right? So the nonprofit arm of a very major fast food chain. And she talked to us about how being a highly sensitive person made her fantastic at her job. It was the reason she was good at her job. She said she couldn't do what she does otherwise, because she would get into a room with somebody who, and that, you know, the kind of donors that come to maybe a, a corporate foundation for a fast food chain. Of course, they do have sincere concerns and cares for the world, but there's also an element to it that's we're looking for good PR for our company, that kind of thing. These are like, you know, really, you know, tough as nails VP types who are coming in and, um, they would they would come in and really kind of grill her, you know. They come in with this like, I don't, and I don't think we're going to give any money, but you know, try to pitch me on this and da 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 da. And within 20 minutes of talking to them, she would be able to not only you know warm them up and and build that relationship, but start to align, show them where their interests align with their organizations. And she would often be able to take these really just tough cookies and turn them around into really committed donors who would keep coming back over and over. Um, so it made her good at her job because she was sensitive, because she could read people with that same empathy that people seem to think is weak. It was a great strength for her. Yeah, I love um, I love what you're saying, just this idea of, of the just right. I mean, certainly among people that I talk to, I talk to plenty of people who, you know, who I think closer to me are trying to manage what it feels like 
to be sensitive and to feel sometimes, you know, like I know things about space and rooms and people and situations that, you know, like I would be burned at the stake, you know, like I'm not supposed to really get or see these things and, you know, trying to manage that. But then equally other people, especially people who are trying to learn how to fundraise better, who don't think of themselves as being able to read conversations or know when they've lost their crowd, you know, when the, yeah. so um, it's, it's lovely to hear about somebody like, Oh, there's a space here. That's like just right. You know, it's not, yeah. it's not too hot or too cold. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious also, I, I know there, there's this receiving aspect, but then there is also the generating outward aspect i know for me and, and maybe and margaret i think can attest to this there are times where i shine so brightly mm. like it like my emotions will just come out and be like overwhelming and oftentimes in a, in a very enthusiastic way but other yeah. times uh, uh sadness and um grief and um, also compassion. You you talked about leadership. You know, I think one of the seminal attributes of a leader is compassion. Not only to be able to feel the pain of others, but that would be empathy. But also to want to help alleviate that suffering. And this is an amazing. And, and so, not to be overwhelmed by someone's grief or suffering, but also to sense it and then stay you know, grounded and centered as Margaret is saying and, and still be of service. I'm still like ah, navigating all this, you know, so I'd be yeah. interested in, in any of your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think so just as a matter of, of like, Fact, like it, it's absolutely true. Highly sensitive people do experience emotions very strongly. Do we experience emotions more strongly than others? That's hard to say. You can't really rate that very easily. But there's, you know, at the brain level, there's a lot of extra activity in areas related to emotions and in areas that bring together emotional data with other kinds of data. Uh, sort of how much emotion we color into the world around us. So we're very attuned to, and it's that that part of the brain is sort of like why why are flowers a symbol of love rather than just like a colorful vegetable? <laughs> right. It's because you're putting emotional data and physical data together at the same time. Um, so there's more activity there and sensitive people feel emotions very strongly and very vividly. And that's that comes out. And I think the best way to think of that is that that's the source of your passion. Right. Passion is a powerful strength that allows us to unite people. And 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 that's one of the ways that we do uh, take a vision and turn it into something is by showing our own passion. It's infectious to other people as they develop their passion. When it comes to negative emotions, it does mean that those strongly felt emotions can leave sensitive people kind of mired in emotion longer than others might. Um, and it's interesting. I think that for 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 a type of person who is naturally very emotional, right, a highly sensitive person, there's no, there's nothing to suggest that we're automatically better at emotional intelligence. And I think that learning the skills of emotional intelligence is a powerful tool for highly sensitive people. It's true for everyone. Everyone benefits if they learn it, if they kind of hone their emotional intelligence a little bit. But if you're highly sensitive, 
I, I, I always try to not make the mistake of thinking that I'm therefore, you know, really have great emotional intelligence. Like, no, it means I'll put it this way. If, uh, if emotional intelligence is basketball, being highly sensitive is being tall. Right. Right. Just because so you're like, tall doesn't mean you can play in the NBA. Got it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You're not automatically good at basketball because you're tall. You're not automatically full of emotional intelligence because you're sensitive. But you right. have an advantage. If you start practicing those skills, you really could be the varsity player of emotional intelligence. Right. And that's how you start to turn those emotions. First of all, part of emotional intelligence is regulating your emotions and starting to learn the ways in which you can um, move past negative emotions and not get stuck in them for as long. And also the ways to take negative emotions, which will happen. You're not going to make them go away. You're not going to suppress them or turn them off. It happens to everyone. And it's actually better to, uh, you know, accept them and work through them rather than trying to suppress them. So they're not going to make them go away. But when those negative emotions do come up, you'll have the tools to start to um, deal with that, to know how to get through it without as much stress. So I think that's a really good tool set is everything that falls under the umbrella of, of emotional intelligence. Well, Margaret, so yeah, and we could, I think you and I could um, spend hours and hours with Andre and, you know, we're going to, if you have, if you're in the audience and you have any if any of this is is sort of resonating, to use a <laughs> a sensitive word, with you, go get Andre's book. And I know it's full of documentation and science behind this, as well as some tips. So, uh, why don't you bring us home and see if Andre, Margaret, this is I'm yeah. inviting you to bring us home uh, and see if Andre has anything that he wants the audience to go try. Yeah. Andre, what would you like our audience to try? <laughs> it's actually two things. So the first one is, if you're wondering whether you're a sensitive person, you can uh, you can take the test. There is a checklist in the book that you can use to determine that if you check out the book Sensitive, or we have a test on our website, Sensitive Refuge. But the other thing is, if you are a sensitive person, or you think you might be, the most important thing you can do is to start to accept and embrace your sensitivity. We feel so much pressure from the world to hide being sensitive, to downplay it. But the only thing that changes when you do that is you get cut off from these gifts we've been talking about. They become harder to access those gifts if you're trying to downplay your sensitivity. Everything else will be there. You'll still get overstimulated easily. You'll still have strong feelings, but you'll have a hard time accessing your gifts. So instead, the most important thing you can do is start to accept and embrace your sensitivity, lean into it, and lead with your sensitivity in everything you do. Show it to the world, and your gifts will start to shine through. I love that. It's like a movement. We're going to reclaim the word sensitive to mean yes. something good <laughs> rather than something lacking. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. And we will have links to um, to where you can buy Andre's book on our show notes. And a link. I think we'll also put a link to the website where they can. I guess it's Sensitive Refuge. Right. Is that that's it? Yep. Yeah. That, uh, so that the is. yeah, they can take the assessment and go check out the book. Remember, there's a spectrum. So if you're not in the top thirty percent of highly sensitive people as three of us are you're in the next tier and or and all the way down to the other end just so because if you're working in the nonprofit world and you're working with people who are sensitive and a lot of people are drawn to the nonprofit world because of their sensitivity then this is something these are gifts to be celebrated and encouraged and embraced and 
there's a lot of learning to be done, not only for those of us who are sensitive, but also those of us who are not so sensitive in terms of tolerating and appreciating and embracing other folks with this uh, difference. Yeah. So thank you, Andre, best-selling author, Andre Solo. <laughs> thank you so much for yeah, coming and chatting with us today. We so appreciate it. It's a pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by Fundraising Leadership. We provide unique coaching and training programs to grow nonprofit leaders. Please subscribe. If you haven't already, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, you can help us continue to bring thoughtful content with a one-time contribution. This supports our production costs and keeps the show ad-free. Please contribute today using the link in the show notes, and you will receive one or more of our highly acclaimed online courses. Now, go put it into practice. Yeah.